This is what's called a step wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Ellen Leibeta. Today, Australia's good at providing aid in disasters, but is women's sexual and reproductive health being forgotten? Not only at the country level, but also at the donor level, abortion faces a great challenge and the provision of safe abortion saves lives, millions of lives a year. So I think we need to really address the sadly neglected area. But first on the show. I uh, I'm on my way to actually go see a band. So it's the um, Skull Vodka for um, my friend's birthday. A karaoke bar, where the uh, drinks are a little bit cheaper and you can sneak some in. And we're going to celebrate our birthday party. <laughs> it's Friday night in Sydney's inner city. It's five o'clock and the city is getting ready to party. There will be dinner, maybe burgers. If you're serious though, eating is cheating. So if everyone's going to drink it, we be better off getting a cask. Someone's house will be co-opted for pre's and from 6 to 9pm, the drinking begins. The drink of choice is beer, cider and wine. Why wine? Well, it's dirt cheap. We could always get this one. If we get three of them for $33, so we could be drinking wine for the rest of the year. <laughs> so how, many, how much have you had tonight already? Oh, we started at 12. So, yeah, you seem a little shocked by that. That's, uh, that's lethal. So, I don't know, maybe 10, 10, 12. And are you going to keep going tonight? Yeah, that's the plan. That's the plan. That's the plan. Maybe not for long. Under a new proposal by the Royal Australasian College of Physicians, wine could be taxed at the same rate as beer and other spirits. It's called a volumetric tax and could see a bag of four-litre goon increase from $15 to $27. So you purchased cask wine. How much did that cost you? Uh, $9. And would that $9 be different if it was $27, no, I think it's worth it. It's four litres and we're going to make sangria, so it's still good. But let's take a step back here. Australia's current alcohol taxation has been described as a dog's breakfast because of its overcomplicated nature. Basically, there are two ways to tax alcohol, by volume or as a proportion of the retail price. Australia currently uses both types of tax, depending on what type of booze you're buying. If you are into spirits, think vodka, rum and whiskey. You're paying $1 in alcohol tax per standard drink. And that's before GST. This is volumetric tax. You're paying depending on how much alcohol is in the product. We could talk about beer and cider, but that is way too confusing. Beer alone has eight different types of tax. What you need to know is that wine is not taxed by alcohol content. It's taxed by its retail price. It's called a wine equalisation tax, or WET. 
Wine is taxed at a different rate because, according to the wine industry, it is made differently to beer and spirits. Andrew Weeks is the Executive Director of Wine Grape Growers Australia. It's different because it uh, has a very large regional footprint. It is uh, the product of a production cycle that happens once a year, so therefore you have wine companies with very heavy capital investments that are only able to be activated and uh, gain a return on that capital once a year, and that's dictated by um, the, the ripening of the wine grapes. For example, if you splurge on a $700 bottle of Penfolds Grange, the tax is going to be higher than a $10 bottle of whatever you've pulled off the shelf. And this is where the debate lies, because volumetric taxing would hit wine hardest, specifically cheap retail wine. We'd like to see a comprehensive suite of changes put in place that uh, will uh, reduce the problems from alcohol, not affect people who drink responsibly, but reduce the problems from alcohol. Professor Nick Talley is the president of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians, the body behind the latest push for volumetric tax. It's an idea that's been floating around for a while now. The last big push for volumetric tax was in 2009 under the Henry Tax Review. Professor Talley and the Royal Australasian College of Physicians believe taxing alcohol will result in less alcohol-related harm. Price is pretty important, actually, uh, based on the data that's available. Um, so there have been uh, some social experiments, if you like, that have looked at this. I mean, in the Northern Territory in the early 90s, there was a living with alcohol problem. They put a levy on standard drinks, five cents only, and they also put a 35-cent levy on cask wine. And over a four-year period, they showed a 22% reduction in alcohol drinking, a 20% nearly death rate reduction, 20%, and a 66% reduction in hospitalizations related to alcohol-related uh, problems. Now, I would argue uh, that's uh, impressive, and that's a small price shift with a pretty big change. With the cost of alcohol-related harm costing Australia between 15 and $36 billion a year, depending on which study you read, any reduction could be a good thing. Professor Talley says that they have modelled research which says volumetric tax would reduce the rates of death and injury by a third. So a 10% price increase would probably lead to alcohol-related deaths and other injuries reducing by around about, according to the experts, a third. And he's not the only one who thinks price is a factor for reducing consumption. John Wardle is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Health at UTS. Price uh, is, is one of the major drivers of consumption uh, of alcoholic beverages. Uh, this is by sin taxes, as they're called in public health, which is probably not a really good name for them, but it's what they uh, like to call them, you know, are so uh, effective because that's the one thing that really, really does drive consumer behaviour. Uh, it, it works in tobacco, it works in alcohol, it works in... Um, uh, it'll work with sugary drinks if they bring in a sugar tax, for example. On the streets of Sydney, the reaction was mixed. Uh, if so, if the price of alcohol were to increase, do you think you'd stop drinking as much? Probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah, much. Yeah, much probably, yes, definitely. So if it got any more expensive than that, do you reckon you guys would still be buying alcohol? 100%. Probably, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so price isn't a factor. Yeah, really no, Unfortunately, if you don't have enough money, then just make more money. Yeah, it's roughly where we are. We work hard, we spend a lot of it. Wine rose in price, would you still buy it? Uh, yes, because I love wine. Yes, yes. But I still like, um, I've always buy it on sale. It's good, yeah. 
So if they rose to like $5 or $6 each, I would still get them. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to drink alcohol. I like the taste of it. I never overdo it. So I think I would still get a few. I wouldn't go overboard though. Uh, cheap. Today cheap, yeah. <laughs> if it was more expensive, would you buy it? Uh, yeah. I mean, not, not today, but yeah, maybe next weekend when I get paid. Andrew Weeks from Wine Grape Growers Australia isn't convinced. Look, I think what I would like to see is that um, taxation policy in regard to wine is based on evidence. And uh, the evidence out there at the moment is not strong that uh, there is a case for taxing wine more heavily. Um, we've often heard cask wine uh, berated uh, and used as a target for that, yet cask wine has, uh, consumption has continued to decline over years. Um, wine itself is not heavily implicated. If you look at the National Household Drug and Alcohol Survey figures, wine doesn't figure largely amongst the, the product of choice amongst those, uh, in particular, young drinkers who are drinking at heavy levels. Andrew does have a point. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, in 2013, the majority of young people preferred pre-mixed drinks and beer. So who is drinking all this cheap wine? According to a Roy Morgan survey from last year, people aged 65 and over were 60% more likely to go for cask wine than the average wine drinker. But so too are 18 to 24-year-olds. One can assume pensioners and students are the ones who will struggle to afford wine if volumetric tax becomes reality. Just simply changing a tax on it uh, and making a product more expensive uh, focuses all, all the, the, the reaction to that is going to be on price-sensitive drinkers. Um, those who tend to consume lower-priced wine are overwhelmingly people on low or fixed incomes who tend to be people over the age of 55, such as uh, pensioners and grey nomads. Uh, they're the people who tend to drink the lower-priced wine. I think it's like using a sledgehammer to crack a walnut. It's uh, probably an ineffective measure. The socio-economics of drinking mean that people who have less money will not be able to afford alcohol. John Wardle again. There's a lot of socioeconomic drivers behind alcohol consumption. Uh, you know, the same arguments you can make with smoking. Uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that people are smoking because they deserve a reward <laughs> or, or, or something like that. This is not, you know, why they're drinking or smoking or uh, or whatnot. The, um, uh, you know, it, it's more the socioeconomic disparities that create an environment which requires a lot of the community to self-medicate themselves with these things. So, you know, I think we focus so much on, you know, let them have a drink when really we should be focusing on reducing the social, you know, socioeconomic inequalities that are causing this problem in the first place. Professor Talley also compares alcohol pricing to that of tobacco. And like tobacco, alcohol pricing will affect the most disadvantaged. I, I acknowledge that if you were to tax cheap alcohol, that would affect um, uh, some strata of society more than others, and uh, and that is true. And, and, and I realise that some people who are drinking responsibility, who don't have a lot of money, may say, well, why am I being targeted? And, of course, they're not being targeted. Uh, but the problem is um, the harmful effects are so significant, uh, they are so major, they don't just affect people who are drinking, Drinking. They affect their family uh, and the rest of the community. That I believe, and the College of Physicians, the you know group of doctors, the you know, and a lot of which are experts in this, agree. We do need to do something. It's a little bit like smoking. I mean, current 
prices of smoking really hit the socioeconomically disadvantaged, but on the other hand, nobody should be smoking. But will the added cost of alcohol reduce the cost of alcohol's society-related harm? Andrew Weeks thinks wine is not to blame for the violence we now see every weekend across Australia. That would probably resonate with your listeners if they, they look at the, the causes of um, alcohol fueled violence and the, the people that are implicated. They're, they're predominantly in, in a urban night spots. Young people under the age of 35, predominantly male. Um, those people are not predominantly wine drinkers. It's not just the violence we can see, though. As John Wardle points out, the violence we should be worried about is in the home, and that can be fuelled by cheap alcohol bought from the local shops. Most alcohol-related violence doesn't happen on the streets, it happens in the homes. Uh, And it happens in the homes due to cheap alcohol fuelling domestic violence. So uh, if we're really serious about tackling alcohol-related violence, um, it's pointless just locking down King's Cross um, without actually addressing all these other factors that are, are causing violence and um, conveniently we just don't happen to see because it happens in people's homes. John recommends not only a volume-based tax, but a minimum floor price on alcohol. This means that alcohol couldn't be sold below a certain price. So um, companies can actually, you know, they don't have to pass on the entire cost to the customer. Um, and this is what you see with Coles and Woolworths, for example, in their two-for-one promotions of alcohol, wine in particular, sometimes beer, uh, is that they're often paying the customer <laughs> to take away a bottle of wine in the hope that they'll go to Liquorland or, or, or whatever, um, BWS or whatever store is associated with, um, with that supermarket and get hooked, basically. So they're essentially um, subsidising that customer's alcohol purchase. So what the minimum floor price would do um, would say that, you know, you can only sub, you know, <laughs> the customer has to pay this much for a bottle of wine. The wine industry is also concerned that any tax will drive away customers and thus affect business. Andrew says it's not the first time they've managed to dodge a volumetric tax on wine. I just think the main point about um, coming up with um, taxation policy on on wine, it's important that it's based on evidence and not based on emotion. Um, In the past, uh, this volumetric tax has not uh, gained traction because the industry has rightly said that it's going through very difficult times at the moment. But It's difficult to see, based on evidence, how there's ever going to be a good time for such an ill-conceived tax with such potentially bad outcomes. It's no easy feat, balancing the wine industry's profitability versus keeping the population healthy. There are always ideological you know, opposition to, to any syntax. Um, you know, there's, there's this sort of uh, idea that people just want to take your fun things away. Uh, that's certainly not true. Um, it's just uh, about, you know, enjoying them moderately rather than um, excessively. Coming up next, why women's sexual and reproductive health should be given priority after natural disasters. <laughs> You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, on demand at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. When disaster strikes, Australia launches into action, providing the essentials to help the nation impacted. For example, when a 7.8 magnitude earthquake devastated Nepal last year, Australians donated $13.1 million to the Red Cross. But in the rush to provide water, food and shelter, 
important things like sexual and reproductive health can get left behind. Nina Kopel has this report and a warning to listeners that this story does include graphic imagery. You might just want to turn us down for a couple of minutes if you think you might be affected. When there's conflict like that, women are very, very, very vulnerable because, you know, raping and is a, it's a weapon of war. No one knows the challenges facing women in times of conflict and after disasters better than Tony Stokes, a nurse and midwife with the International Red Cross. Most recently, she was working in South Sudan in a small village near the Ethiopian border. Among other things, teaching and practising midwifery meant raising awareness for a condition called obstetric fistula. Which means often that there's a hole from, as a childbirth injury, the baby getting stuck or something like this and not being having access to health care. The baby dies, usually, the baby dies. But the mother also has an injury where there's urine or feces coming out from the vagina all the time. And so they smell and they're isolated and it's a, it's a complete, it's a disaster. And this thing, although it's complex, can be fixed. This problem can be fixed with surgery. We were doing some um, talking about this to see if there were women who were outside in the villages who were really isolated. And one of the TBAs brought in this woman and uh, because she smelt, she smelt a lot. And um, she was an older woman and I couldn't quite understand because she hadn't had babies, I couldn't quite understand what had happened. And you have to use an interpreter, of course, and the interpreter has to understand the real importance of privacy in this situation. She can't go and talk outside. So we finally got to it that this lady had been married but she hadn't had children and that can happen sometimes. People can just be infertile. But after her husband died, she had been raped with um, an implement and also like raped and also an implement. And so she had this injury. And um, I just remember saying to her, I don't know, I I was just sort of being, um, I don't know, kind I suppose and saying, you know, this is this is a bad thing that has happened, and um, it's hard that you've had to, you know, deal with this for, for it was for a few years, and um, uh, and and I'm going to talk with someone else about what what we can do to intervene, and you might have to go to Juba. And this lady just said, um, she still was crying, and she said, "I oh, just I want to thank you for, I don't know, <laughs> talking to me. I suppose I want to thank you for." for listening to me. Every woman, every adolescent, everywhere should have this uh, services available to them. That was director of the SPRINT initiative, Adeti Goosh. SPRINT is managed by the International Planned Parenthood Federation in collaboration with the United Nations Population Fund. SPRINT aims to provide sexual and reproductive health to crisis and disaster survivors in East Asia and the Pacific. But when food and water are in short demand, she says women's sexual health are often forgotten. During and after an emergency, people will need the food shelter. People do not differentiate that the agency who provide food or shelter or health services. What they want, what they, their life need, their dignity, kind of, they want to survive with dignity. So whatever needed for that, they will ask for that. They are greatly left out of the equation. That's Angela Dawson, Senior Lecturer in the Faculty of Health at UTS. I mean, I think to sort of draw one's attention to the magnitude of um, humanitarian crises globally, 
it, it's quite um, revealing to remind ourselves that, that, you know, at the end of 2015, there were 60 million people affected um, by conflict, forcibly removed as a result of conflict, and about 109 million people affected by natural disasters. So within that picture, women and children are often um, the, an afterthought when there are other competing priorities such as food and water uh, and um, accommodation for those people. But nevertheless, women still remain pregnant um, and um, require assistance. And the women and children are an extremely vulnerable group in the sense that um, they're at greater risk of, of uh, violence, sexual violence, and they still, so they require um, uh, interventions to prevent and, and assist them if um, they're uh, in those um, situations. But also women still require family planning, contraception um, in, in such crises. What are some of the issues surrounding family planning? Yeah, I think there's lots of work to be done in the area of family planning. So the provision of, of contraception um, is really important. We know that um, family planning averts 35% of maternal deaths. It can avert up to 10% of childhood deaths. So it's it could be a big win for us. However, only 4% of um, overseas development assistance within the area of reproductive health is actually assigned to family planning. So we're resource poor in that um, field. And we also know that of the um, the proposals for reproductive health pr uh, protection, um, which comes from a database that the European um, Commission holds, only family planning comprises only 15% of those proposals. So it appears to be really low on the agenda. So low in funding proposals and low in the, you know, people's efforts for to ameliorate situations, yet could be so powerful in averting deaths and addressing issues for women. How is family planning delivered? Because it's not a, a pill or a, a, a bandage you can put in a pack and send off it. it what does it involve? So family planning is really a suite of um, services, including uh, contraception, so commodities, so condoms, um, oral contraceptive pills, emergency contraception, um, the IUD, intrauterine device. Obviously, these commodities are delivered, but the health workers sh should um, counsel and communicate in, in a you know, negotiation with women um, and often partners uh, discuss birth spacing and family yeah, planning their own families. So when we talk about family planning, does abortion fit into that, that suite of family planning that you mentioned as well? Yeah, absolutely. So in the minimum initial service package or the MISP, safe abortion is a very important part of um, sexual and reproductive health. However, like ECP or emergency contraceptive pills, it uh, suffers from you know lack of funding and is often excluded. In fact, it was noted in the recent global evaluation that safe abortion care was uh, sadly neglected in the suite of services as part of the MISP. And that's often partly to do with not only cultural and, and um, country 
laws, acceptance of abortion, but also in low middle income countries, but also in donors themselves. So America, for example, the its overseas development aid, uh, abortion is excluded. Funding for abortion is completely excluded. So that puts packages such as the MISP at risk of resourcing because uh, family planning is something that America is very strong at and, and strongly supports. But when uh, um, abortion is part of the picture, um, USAID will not not fund those um, programs. So not only at the country level, but also at the donor level, abortion faces a great challenge. And abortion is, a, uh, you know, provi- the provision of safe abortion saves lives, millions of lives a year. So we, um, yeah, I think we need to really address this sadly, sadly neglected area. And if we don't make abortions more accessible, Tony Stokes from the Red Cross says the situation will only get worse. People usually, like people will use a mixture of herbs and other things they'll put into the vagina and try and, uh, and, and some of that might just be which, you know, absolutely no, no basis of science at all in, in doing that and just might introduce infection. Um, I suppose it's something that definitely always needs to be developed. That has to be there, that option. Yes, otherwise people will be forced to do unsafe things and you will lose mothers who already have children to support and you will lose them. They, they can die. They, and then those children are at very, very, very vulnerable themselves you know, because it's the mother who is like really the protector of children and the nurturer of children. And if she's not there, those children are at absolute, it's a disaster, really, if, them, if their mother dies. Tony Stokes, a nurse and midwife with the International Red Cross, ending that story by Nina Copel. forget if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash think health you can also tweet us at 2ser please remember journalists are not doctors if we've made you ask questions go and see your gp this show is produced with the support of the university of technology sydney faculty of health i'm ellen lee beater see you next week for more